Welcome to Capital Decanted. In this show, we say goodbye to tired market takes and superficial sound bites. Because here, instead of skimming the surface, we dive into the heart of capital allocation, striking the perfect balance and exposing the subtleties that reveal the topic's true essence. Prepare to have your perspectives challenged as we open up the issues that resonate with the hearts and minds of those shaping capital allocation. We've enlisted the wisdom of visionary leaders in the industry, and just like a meticulously crafted wine, will allow their insights to breathe, unfurling their hidden depths and transforming our understanding. This is season one, episode four of Capital Decanted. I'm John Bowman. And I'm Christy Hamilton. And we are your hosts. As always, a huge thank you to our season one title sponsor, Franklin Templeton Alternatives. With over 40 years of alt investing and $260 billion of asset center management, they've assembled and offer specialist investment managers across six different asset classes, private debt, hedge funds, real estate, infrastructure, private equity, and venture capital. And of course, all of them operate with the client first mentality that has always defined Franklin Templeton to prioritize investment outcomes. So thank you once again, Franklin Templeton Alternatives. So first, Christy, before we jump in, we are in day four upon this recording of your new married life. For listeners, join me in congratulating Christy on her wedding last Friday. Well done. How did it go? Thank you. It was great. It was great. And I have to mention one important point. He is, in fact, Akaya. Yeah, well, we interviewed him <laughs> and made sure that was part of the deal. Indeed, indeed. It was a lot of fun. It was family only at our family home in Hill Country, Texas, and just a great weekend. But I'm glad to be back. And I'm really, really excited about this episode in particular. I'm so happy for you and for him and look forward to meeting him. Thank you. It's exciting. Exactly. December, hopefully. He'll probably come with me. We'll see. Perfect. So let's transition to culture. I am so excited about this episode. I'm always excited about our episodes, but particularly this one. And I'd like to open up out of curiosity with, when was the first time in your career that the idea of culture, the idea of cultivating or building or investing in culture, professional development, coaching, whatever synonym or phraseology you want to use, do you have memories of this early in your practitioner career? It's funny because when I think back, I can think back to getting to work with just a number of really great leaders and people who fostered these amazing cultures. And I realized that as I look back in each of those instances, we never talked about it as culture. It was just the things that we did. It wasn't, these are the four tenets of our culture. It was more of like a, these are the expectations and this is what we do. And these are the stretch roles that we want you to take. And I was surprised because the first time I was formally introduced to culture, it was pretty far in my career. And it actually was at an organization that used cultural language to mask what were more backwards and in some cases dystopian practices where the actions and expectations of the umbrella organization of the broader organization I worked for punished and even I would say bled strong performers while subsequently rewarding a handful of highly political people. And so I was actually really surprised that my first formal introduction to culture and the graphics and that this is what we do was actually in an organization that I would say had been an unfortunate culture in many ways. What about in your experience? So by the way, I hope that dystopian, that that's the only time that appears in the episode on culture, but I like the use. I hear what you mean. <laughs> My experience was not all that different. I don't think I heard the word culture or the phrases team building or professional development until at least a decade 
into my career. I grew up in the Boston asset management industry and the barometer, I'm not blaming anybody. This was just the water we swam in. The barometers we looked at was purely the Bloomberg screen, my peer rankings, my relative performance, how happy our clients were. It was dog eat dog, unhealthy competition for attention, recognition, bonus, reputation. I was a party to all of this. I'm not excusing myself at all, but that is the way it was. And it's honestly part of the reason I don't want to overstate this, but I was a bit burned out by the whole experience in that first decade of my career. It just didn't feel like it suited my values and philosophy of work. Now, at 30 years old, I'm not sure I even had a philosophy of work or a framework for what good culture was, but <laughs> I knew it wasn't a healthy environment, but I didn't know what to compare it to, to assess shortcomings. But it wasn't until like you, much later in my career that I worked for several really awesome leaders. And I've written a little bit about those mentors, by the way, one of my articles on these Frankenstein I've become, as I like to say, where you take a little bit and bits and pieces and parts of all the leaders you've worked for, and it becomes your own philosophy. That becomes you. The pupil becomes like the teacher, as the old proverb goes. So finally, through those experiences, almost osmosis and experiential, it became top of mind. It starts to absorb into your way of thinking, your expectations, and ultimately now at this stage of my career, how I manage people myself. So I think all of us, or at least most of the listeners, probably can empathize, regardless of your age and experience level, with maybe a little bit less emphasis on this in our part of the world than in others. And so as I've already said, there was a sense in which this was the most enjoyable episode to prep for, and the easiest perhaps for me, because I've deeply believed in this for many years, given that experience I just articulated. I certainly didn't need to convince myself that the subject needed attention. It needed a dedicated episode. That was easy. I didn't need to study the history in depth like some others. So needless to say, we had a lot of fun. It was more of a passion project than an educational experience. So, But listeners, so here's our agenda, just to give you a sense for where we're going. I'm going to cover some of the framing of culture and investment management from two different dimensions. First, a high-level overview, almost a I hesitate to use this language, but a literature review. No one would ever accuse me of being an academic, but I've done a little bit of homework and summarized and giving you a bit of a cliff notes on several studies and work on the subject that I hope you'll find helpful that will equip us for our conversation with our guests. And second, the other dimension is how the importance of culture extends to your partners or to the GPs and asset managers you're hiring. And if you are listening and are a GP, I think this is really important for how the LPs and your clients should be thinking about your culture, assessing your culture, how you should be emphasizing and showcasing, I hope, what is a very healthy culture to those potential and existing LPs. So a bit of a tour of the importance of culture inside and outside your walls, you might say. And then I'm going to hand the mic to newly married Christy, who's going to provide her perspective <laughs> on culture in our industry, her specific and personal perspective. And what often can be what I would call grit in the wheels or even blinders in her experience that I think all of you will resonate with. And then, of course, climax of the episode, as always, we'll have our special guests in studio to help the topic breathe a little bit more. And today we have Kim Liu, CEO of Columbia Investment Management, $25 billion on behalf of the university that she and her team are managing, and Jim Dunn. CEO of Verger, which is a $2.6 billion OCIO located in Winston-Salem. And why Winston-Salem, you might say, for you ACC fans, that of course is where 
Wake Forest is located. And Verger was previously the Wake Forest Investment Office. And then in 2014, they opened up to other endowments and foundations to create an OCIO, even though Wake is still a big, big part of their business. So two brilliant leaders. I know I speak for Christy. These are two leaders and culture builders that we have tremendous respect and admiration for. So they are perfect for our discussion here. But first, we've got some business to cover before we invite them into studio. So if you've been a listener for our first three episodes, you might know that we talked about governance in our last episode as table stakes, as foundational to meeting investment outcomes. And that, of course, is because it's the top of the food chain. We talked about it steering the ship. So as it goes, the organization goes. All of that is absolutely true. But to maybe crush a metaphor beyond its life, a scaffolding or the frame without a house would be a rough place to live in. So the most common definition of culture as we think about building out that house and that home and that environment of our workplace are the norms, the conventions, and the values that define the organization. I'm sure most of you have heard some form of that definition. Or more informally, sometimes it's said, how do we do things around here? Or how do we do things when no one's looking? And I think all of that is technically correct, but I like to say that a healthy culture is the oxygen by which you accomplish the work of the organization. It breathes life and vitality into the collective work of the enterprise, and it should give meaning and connection to a shared purpose or goal. Now, on the other side of the ledger, an unhealthy organizational culture, and this is similar to the way we talk about a locker room for you athletes or ex-athletes, but an unhealthy locker room, an unhealthy culture, it may maintain some appearance of momentum for a short period of time by sheer will, by a good run of luck or winning or outperformance or authority. But eventually the organization is starved of the basic hygiene it needs to thrive and that will come to an end. So sustainability and fulfillment for the employees, for enjoyment and ultimately performance, as we're going to get to very explicitly, is only achievable through a very intentional watering and feeding and reinforcement of culture. And what I just said is true for any industry and any organization, but I want to raise the stakes a bit more for us and suggest that culture in our part of the world, in investment management, despite it being historically neglected, I would say, on a relative basis, and we'll talk at length about that, that it's even more important for us than other industries because culture should be informed by the mission of the organization, right? It's intertwined with the why, has to be, of our existence. So our culture, therefore, should flow from the virtuous purpose of the capital pools we're stewarding, serving pensioners that have paid their civic duty, the dignity of a family's retirement dreams, the support of future generations of students at universities, and so on. So this fiduciary mindset, this higher purpose of our profession, needs to be the starting DNA of our particular culture shaping. So we're always playing the book game here on Capital to Canada, but Patrick Galincioni is my very favorite writer on culture, done a lot, read nearly all of his stuff, done a lot of studies and workbooks with him, but he said it this way, organizational health is the single greatest competitive advantage in any business. It is the secret sauce, the persistent edge, the ultimate source of operational alpha. And I think, Christy, in a world where investment edge is increasingly difficult and short-lived, and more and more elusive, culture is indeed becoming a superpower. So we've all got our go-to books, and I'm going to ask you yours in a moment. But I think for the last decade, without exception, I've handed the following two books to almost every new hire I've made at every organization I've been at. And those two are one by Mr. Lencioni that I just mentioned, called The Advantage, 
So I would highly commend that to you. I think it's probably Lencioni's best book because it's a bit of a catch-all. It's a bit of an anthology of all his great work that you can read in his other pieces. The other one, which is a lovely companion piece, but a great read, almost reads like a mystery novel, a fiction story that is really hard to put down, is called American Icon. Alan Mulally was the CEO of Ford. He was hired out of Boeing to kind of rebuild the dwindling and deteriorating Ford just before the global financial crisis. So he inherited what already was a bleeding organization, and then he suffered what was a massive crisis in the GFC, but he very much adopts the Lencioni mindset and view of culture. And so it brings to life a lot of the frameworks that Patrick talks about. And by the way, I think we talked about this in the prep, Christy, I've seen a ton of social coverage of Anna Marshall's new book. Anna Marshall is the CIO of the William and Flora Hewitt Foundation. She just published a book, The Climb to Investment Excellence, A Practitioner's Guide to Building Excellent Portfolios and Teams. So I just love to see investment professionals that are out there publishing and talking about this. So good on Anna Marshall. So how about you? Do you have a go-to culture or leadership book that you've either shared or just has been hugely influential to you? Well, I will say my copy of Anna's book is getting delivered today. So ask me again in a week. But one of my favorites, I would say before I go to books, I really enjoyed the documentary on Netflix, actually, of Boeing and how a lot of their recent issues and the cultural issues embedded in their company and merger that created those. So some of the disasters that they dealt with over the past years. So I'll start with that. But I find it very interesting just in terms of having it as a case study and how culture can creep up on you in ways that you do not expect. And then beyond that, I really love a book called Multipliers. And I specifically appreciate that the authors, including Liz Wiseman, they basically spend a lot of time, not just on the attributes of what creates a multiplier in an organization. And those are people who make everyone around them better effectively. But they also talk about these diminishers and specifically the accidental diminishers. So how leaders and managers within their organizations have the best of intentions and still do things that end up draining their teams or their colleagues. So I found that mindset to be fascinating because I think we forget sometimes that culture, nobody wants bad culture. I guess maybe there's somebody out there who does, but for the most part, we don't want bad culture. But it is a good reminder that our actions and things that we do can create that whether we like it or not. That sometimes even despite our best efforts, we end up creating these feelings within our team that are actually counterproductive. So Multipliers, great book. I think I haven't read that one. So I definitely add that to my Christmas list. By the way, should we launch a Capital Decanted book club? I feel like we are here for you on recommendation. We Great Gatsby, we had Ashby's books. Now we've got Multipliers and Patrick Lencioni. So there you go. We could rival Oprah on the book club. Food for thought over the holidays. We should do it. I love it. All right. Well, let's get started. As I said, two dimensions I want to cover. First is your own culture, building your own culture. I almost feel like we give overexposure to Thinking Ahead Institute. They are not sponsoring us. They have no vested interest in this podcast, but they do amazing work. Again, I've said it before on this show. This is the arm's length thought leadership group within WTW. They do just a wonderful job at writing and studying and surveying on some of the softer elements of the industry that need a lot of attention. And so they were a perfect go-to resource for culture in this particular episode. They put together a significant body of work on the subject of culture. And by the way, we'd encourage you to read through all of these. We've noted a few of them in the show notes. The landing page of their culture work is there. But in many ways, their creation in 2015, so this is eight-ish years ago, by WTW, and the echo chamber that initially 
was present around their thought leadership, I think is largely symbolic of Christianized experience. No one really cares or pays at least relative attention to culture. And the emphasis was just not there on the subject. But since then, there's been a huge increase in self-awareness, recognition of culture's importance, and attention to creating a more healthy organization. So TAI has really become a go-to organization because they've rode out this cycle. So as I promised, I want to give you a very brief flyover of their library of research. And I want to start with maybe some headlines here. I read through four or five of their studies here. I had seen them before, so it was really a refresher. And in trying to summarize, there were three main takeaways that I think in their own right are helpful for us to give us some breadcrumbs through the course of the next lots of minutes that we're going to be talking together and with our guests. But I think each of them also have that I'm going to mention the other side of the ledger or the coin that they debunk excuses or reasons why leaders will sometimes dismiss the power of culture or give up, not necessarily maliciously, but just get exhausted with this because this is a lot of work and we'll get to that. So three main takeaways. First, culture matters and it is a unique ingredient of organizational success. Now, I want to really emphasize this word unique. It is mutually exclusive from business and investment strategy. That's really important. It's not an extension of, it's not intertwined with. And what that means is that business and investment strategy, most importantly, can be recreated. They can be competed out. They can be copied. Culture cannot be recreated or replicated. So we're going to talk a lot more about this. But the other side of that coin, as I mentioned, is that in order for it to be a competitive advantage that's consistent, that's not replicable, it's a slog. It is a lot of work. It's a daily choice to feed and proactively pursue building and watering great culture. So defeatism can often set in, understandably, on building good culture, because it is this constant battle to reinforce and to nourish. So that's number one. Culture matters. It is proven to truly matter. Second, culture can be shaped, cultivated, and managed. So I want to be clear about one thing, and I've seen this so many times throughout the course of my career. Let's be abundantly clear. Culture is going to happen. A culture will be formulated whether leadership is attempting to do it or not. You can be derelict in your duty. You can ignore the power of culture. You can give no credence or attention to trying to build a certain type of culture, but a culture will be created. And I would say that almost always an organic or unbound or natural development of a culture is rarely going to be a good culture. It needs to be purposeful. So it can be shaped and it needs to be shaped because it's going to form regardless. So third, and this is probably, I think, the one that is most misunderstood. Culture can be measured and assessed. I think this is the biggest excuse out there. This is not overly squishy. It's not all subjective. It's not open to interpretation. We often hear things like you can only manage what you can measure. And since it's not quantitative, you can't measure it. So why bother? We're going to talk a bit about that. There's a lot of work being done to make sure you can assess improvement. Dashboards can be created. Direction of travel can really be measured. TAI, in fact, regarding a dashboard, they have built one. In one of their first studies, they built a dashboard that was broadly centered around what they determined through all of their surveys and research the five core attributes of a healthy culture. So those five were a client-centric purpose and drive. This is the recognition, as they put it, of fiduciary responsibility and professional service to clients. So again, back to that virtuous purpose as the grounding DNA of everything we're doing. 
Two, people-centric ethos, they say. So we're respecting personal development wishes, encouraging maximum creativity, facilitating collaboration opportunities, and personal recognition are all critical. Finding fulfillment in self. Number three, excellence. Uncompromising expectations for performance, quality, and consistency. I think this also touches on something that I hear a lot, which is if you have too strong of a culture, is there no expectations? Is nobody working hard? It's just feel good. We're all best friends, so we don't hold each other accountable. That's not the case. There is certainly a tension in that, especially on the leadership side. I don't want to dismiss that because you need to hold people accountable, but that doesn't mean that respect and empowerment and recognition don't go along with that. Fourth, integrity. Innate respect, openness, support for diversity and ethical orientation are present. And fifth, so we've got client-centric, we've got people-centric, we've got excellence, we've got integrity, and fifth, positive leadership. And this is particularly involving the tone at the top, setting a direction and empowerment. So critical that culture is fed, created, and modeled from the top down, or it just simply ain't going to work, I assure you. In their most recent piece on this long series on culture, this was in 2021, Kaya actually worked with TAI on their thought leadership piece that they called Culture, the Organizational Superpower. And this was based on the findings of a survey of asset managers, some of which that Kaya was involved in helping recruit. And one of the defining quotes from this piece that really hit me as I reread this was the following says that leaders are discovering that not only is culture a key superpower for keeping the organization on track, but is the super glue to prevent it from coming unstuck. So it has both proactive building and empowerment and growth opportunities, while at the same time, it has risk management elements so that you don't come unraveled. And I'm editorializing here, but that is particularly important in times of crisis, market volatility, challenges, adversity, etc. So it's a huge differentiator, as was stated in the previous study on its lack of replicability. Bill Kelly, our CEO, wrote a contribution piece to that particular study, and I loved one of his quotes. He wrote the following, it is no longer an AUM arms race where the key metric is how big of a slice one has, but rather the demarcation will be the cultural contract. So rather than chasing AUM, we're chasing culture. So that the alternative manager takes on for what are truly assets under their care. So the defining differentiator, the defining winning formula is going to be about a great cultural contract and less so who's going to win the chase and the race for more and more AUM. The other thing that came out of this study that I found really interesting, and as I'll get to in a minute, Christy, a bit counterintuitive for me is that TAI found that asset owner culture has matured much less than asset manager culture. And they said that asset owners, this is a quote as well with a lot of big words that is typical of TAI, so I'll try to do some translation here. My vocab always improves every time I read one of their particular reports, but asset owners' natural conservatism and low levels of innovation and risk tolerance, this is starting to sound like Ashby's work from last episode, by the way, low levels of innovation and risk tolerance work against building differentiated cultures resulting in underdeveloped and somewhat anodyne, I'll define that in a moment, anodyne cultures where avoiding personal risk is an implicit priority. Listeners, I had to look up this word anodyne. So it means not likely to provoke dissent or offense. So you don't like confrontation, basically. And that makes sense. That is a great word. Use that at Thanksgiving. Way to go, TIA. 
So that's interesting. I'm going to get to in a moment why this was counterintuitive to me, but just continuing with the facts of the results of this survey. This was serendipitous because I was just looking at pension and investments, best places to work. And by the way, I think this episode, if you're listening, will drop just before in late November. But on December 11th, p is due to drop their 2023 rankings of best places to work. And this is one of the few dedicated studies on culture and investment management. So I thought I would just take a look. I always interestingly read through the winners of this every year. But last year, 2022, just to give us a sense as to asset managers versus asset owners and their makeup. 2022, last year, 121 firms across all different shapes and sizes, by the way, were recognized by P&I. Four of the 121 were asset owners. Only four. Calsters, Alaska Perm, led by Kaya Marcus Frampton, Calsters, of course, our last guest, CIO Chris Alman, Lockheed Martin Investment Management, number three, CIO Paul Colonna, West Virginia Investment Board, CIO Craig Slaughter. So four of the 121 last year. I went back because I'm just shocked at this. 2021, 100 companies recognized. Only two of the 100 were asset owners, Calsters and Alaska Perm again. 2020, one more year back, 94 winners, only Calsters. So I don't know exactly the methodology here. Maybe you have to apply. There's probably a little bit of gamesmanship, so I don't want to overstate this. But the reality is, however they're composing and ultimately awarding these best places to work, there are very few asset owners in the discussion. So why this disconnect between asset owners and asset managers? As I said a couple of times already, this is actually counterintuitive. I would have expected the opposite because as we begun the episode, if purpose or your why for existence, your existential why for existence, heavily or at least should heavily influence your culture, shouldn't it follow that those closest to the end beneficiary, the client, retain the purest forms of norms associated with that purpose? That would be the logic that I would play out. But the study, in fact, suggests the opposite. Two main reasons. Number one, reasons why asset managers have perhaps progressed more on culture than asset owners. Number one is governance and maturity. And again, we talked at length about this in the last episode with Ashby and with Chris Aylman, episode three. The reality is you're serving lots of stakeholders. A lot of those stakeholders sit on your boards and that creates conflicting priorities. There's often non-invest professionals that are on your board or orbiting around your process. And in a lot of cases, there's less acumen as corporate leaders and board members. So I think culture just gets lost in a lot of that confusion and multiple masters that you're serving. So that's the first one. Number two, and I think this is really interesting, asset managers operate in a competitive environment. So you are inherently incentivized to create competitive or comparative advantage. And asset owners, with the exception of the Aussie supers, are largely monopolies. And so you have very little threat. And this is probably largely subconscious. I'm not saying that CIOs at asset owners sit around and go, well, we can have a terrible culture because no one can leave. But Ashby said this well in the last episode too. If you're in, not to pick on these cities, but Des Moines, Iowa, Juneau, Alaska, or even here where I live in Salt Lake, you can't exactly walk across the street if you're disenchanted with the culture and interview with several other firms like you could if you were in New York City, London, or Hong Kong. So perhaps some, again, subconscious complacency sets in and you're just not as focused on assuring that your talent is heavily fulfilled. So again, it comes back to that word anodyne, which we're going to use on every episode going forward. I'm just kidding. 
but this idea of avoiding conflict. And we all know that one of the pillars of healthy culture has to be vulnerability, transparency, constructive debate, encouraged dissent, respectful contrarianism. These are all elements, ingredients to make sure that people feel heard and the wisdom of the crowds plays on. And so in a monopoly, complacency and avoidance of conflict and change is probably human nature. It's probably natural. Really interesting work from TAI. And again, I have skinned the surface with just a few headliners there. But as I promised, I want to hit one more dimension before I hand the mic back to you, Christy. And that is once we look up from looking in, which we've been doing so far, to our partners, to how we assess culture within our manager selection process, within our partners. And again, if you're a GP, how should LPs be assessing you on these? And should they? How much should they be weighing these elements of manager selection? For this case, Kaya ran our own study in early 2021 to test somewhat of a cynical premise. And I'm going to read you right from the editorial that I summarized the study back then. It had been a while since I read this, so it was really interesting. Here was the full of hyperbole, cynical hypothesis that we were testing in this study. Quote, the investment management industry is systematically beholden to self-feeding machinations that foster a game of hot potato with capital allocation. The entire chain fans the flame of buying general partners high and selling low through its captivity to the short-term overlords of quarterly peer rankings, market-weighted index relative performance, and sharp ratios. End quote. So again, hyperbole, fun, poetry in motion. By the way, I included that editorial in the show notes as well, so you can take a look at that. So to test whether the industry is indeed underweighting the power of qualitative factors in its manager selection methodology, as I said, we conducted this exclusive survey of both allocators and investment managers. And if you're anything like me, you are going to be blown away by the results. They were overwhelmingly convincing. As we went into this, there was no way I thought this was going to be as convincing and as crystal clear as what the data suggested. Here's probably the two headlines that came out to summarize the whole study, is that qualitative factors are considered equal to or more important than quantitative factors by 97% of the respondents. And interestingly, disproportionately relevant in private capital asset classes, such as private equity, venture capital, private debt, and real assets. So that's one of the two headlines. The one that I think was an even bigger shock, at least the sheer numbers and overwhelming support for it was that respondents were asked between quantitative, qualitative, and operational, which of those has the most predictive power of future investment performance? I just want to be clear about that. Not how long people stay, not how good people feel about their work environment, not how much they love their workers and their best friends and their leaders, but actual correlation with investment performance. 75% of respondents claim that qualitative factors have moderate to high predictive power for future investment performance. And that compares to 51% for quantitative factors and just 43% for operational factors. So culture matters. And in this case, quantitatively, it matters a lot. And so convincing was the study that we wrote, this editorial I've already mentioned, channeling the great Peter Drucker, we entitled it, Culture Eats the Sharp Ratio for Breakfast. Again, we have included that in the show notes, so you can take a look. That summarizes the study, but I've also given the landing page for the study itself because we had done a lot of work on it. So what does this mean, culture? If we buy this correlation, this causality even, of culture equaling sustainable, predictive outperformance, what specifically should we be doing 
what should we be peppering our due diligence process with to ensure that we are weighing that? Well, three priorities in particular were the highest ranked ingredients to developing strong culture in this same Kaya survey. And we were told that their emphasis should be elevated in manager selection methodology, that they're clearly underweighted, underappreciated currently. So three things you should be focusing on and incorporating more heavily into your due diligence. So first and foremost is integrity. So regardless of historical performance, does the manager have a value set and moral compass that matches your own? Because when the inevitable adversity and difficult stretches arrive, those challenges will be certain to reveal the true character of your partners. Second is the alignment of interests. So what circumstances allow for the manager to participate in reward or penalty? The standard carried interest arrangement that all of us are familiar with of GPs. It's a nearly free option with asymmetric payoff benefits. So perhaps the industry should move to not only an expectation of higher capital commitments by the GP, so they're co-investing and they're aligned alongside of their investors, but also a sharing of both upside and downside around a hurdle rate. And I've seen some GPs experimenting with this more symmetric payoff slash clawback type of arrangement. Further, how inclusive is the carried interest participation at the firm? Is the manager breeding what you might call a celebrity system, or is it one where all team members partake in the same outcomes as the client have a piece of the carry? And then finally, thirdly, transparent communication. LPs must ascertain the answer to a simple question. Is the manager delivering a product that does what it says on the tin, as my British friends like to say, on the cover? Our survey participants underscored that over-reliance on a standard due diligence questionnaire, a DDQ, some of us call it, for this critical fiduciary role is short-sighted. Is the investment process consistent with their behavior in all market environments? Is there evidence of discipline to stay the course in the face of countercyclical or unfavorable conditions? Questions posed across and down the firm that exposed times where the strategy or edge broke down and how the firm responded can be highly effective, said our respondents. So just as Thinking Ahead Institute developed in its studies, we, as part of this survey, suggested allocators create a repeatable and comparable process, such as a dashboard or a discussion guide, to evaluate these three cultural qualities and their various subcomponents within GP organizations. And the scoring outcomes of this systematic process should ultimately weigh as heavily on higher decisions as traditional quantitatively heavy questionnaires. As I close, this all really circles back to where I started, Christy, which is that sacred responsibility of our profession to serve the needs of a client that's entrusting stewardship of their assets to us. We as an industry must take delegation of that fiduciary duty, meaning we're sharing the fiduciary duty with partner GPs much more seriously and approach it more comprehensively. So when we're hiring managers, they really become a party to an intimate social contract with our clients. That's the way we need to think about it. And it's one that demands an unwavering faithfulness to their financial goals and fiscal care. This ethical duty should rightly expand not just within our walls and your investment team, but to our due diligence beyond sheer numbers to the driving motivations and purposes of our partners that are helping us with slices of this mandate. So I'm going to end my section with that preachy exhortation, Christy. So I hope I haven't worn out listeners, but off to you. And I am excited to hear about your experience, both the good, the bad, and the ugly in culture shaping. Well, preach. I actually really loved your thoughts and feel like you actually did most of the heavy lifting. So thank you for that. So I guess I'll just close with building on some of the points that you've made and then include some quick and dirty life hack that have framed my ideas on culture. 
and then end with some thoughts on how to incorporate into the due diligence process. So starting first with my two life hacks. And the first one, drum roll, please. Don't really do a drum roll, just in your head. Is for leaders and managers to deeply internalize the radical realization that people are different from you and that this is actually a really good thing. I have learned this lesson very slowly over my 40 years on this earth now. And I've also learned that it just takes time and maturity to really internalize this and to understand. And I think it's the realization that people are weird. For example, one of the many ways that I am, one of the many, to be clear, ways that I'm weird is that I'm really interested in how other people think. So my now husband, as John pointed out, Luke and I like to talk about that, how often just in the different ways that we think, we believe that communication has happened, but it hasn't. And so we've gotten really good at calling that out. And one of my favorite examples now was actually the morning of our wedding. I sent out a text to everybody and I was reading it to him in advance. And one of the things I had said was for everybody to show up at 6.15. And he said, actually, can you change that to by 6.15? Because his family is from the Midwest. And he said every single person in his family would receive that text and think, I cannot show up until 6.15 versus I can show up at any point up to 6.15 with 6.15 being kind of the latest that you want us to arrive. And it seems like such a small thing. But these things compound over the course of communication throughout the day. And you just realize how different we think and how much you really have to be thoughtful of understanding where people are and meeting them so you can move forward with them. So I think that the second big one from there is to make a concerted effort to focus on creating the best possible work environment as opposed to winning an award. I think we have a lot of access to information. So it's easy to get obsessed with the cool fads, the open office polar plants. It's easier than ever on top of all of that to attempt to implement those fads very poorly. So employees are smart. They can see through organizations that are faking culture to band-aid disrespect, to underpay versus the market, to demand undue loyalty so that I really think you need to work to ensure that your actions and behaviors are congruent with any of your lofty cultural goals or expectations. So building on your point, John, about the importance of people-centric ethos, you can have all the rec rooms in the world, You can have all of the free food. You can have all of the mandatory team building events. But if you do not take the time to get to know and build individual relationships and truly care about the success of your people, it really doesn't align or it doesn't make a difference if you're not aligned in that regard. And on top of all that, obviously, incentivizing them in an aligned way. It's a big one. So yes, ultimately, set reasonable stretch goals for people. Communicate both goals and expectations effectively, including where failure is not an option. That's a big one. I think that there are a lot of times where we're like, we celebrate failure. And if you're a retailer, you don't celebrate failure in December. You celebrate failure in January. But making those things clear to your employees so that they know where they can take risks and where they can't. And then on top of all of that, once you set those expectations, offer coaching to strengthen individuals and processes. And remember to hold people accountable to communicated expectations, not how you would have done it, not how their former person did it, not even necessarily next to best practices, just using those as teachable moments if you need to, but recognizing that there is usually more than one way to build a portfolio that is good and you might even learn something. When it comes to due diligence for industry specifically, best advice I ever learned was from my former boss and mentor, Ryan Bailey. And that is if you are making hiring and firing decisions based on quantitative performance, you are late to the game. And That's just to say the qualitative stuff matters. Keeping abreast of these changes, whether it be cultural or process changes within the manager, is so much more important than just watching that quarterly performance tick on. John, I loved one thing that you brought up. I think you sent the graphic to me, so it'll be in the show notes. But one of the most important parts of the qualitative side of due diligence is the face-to-face meeting. 
I completely agree. And I would suggest on top of that to try to do at least one extended on-site meeting where you have access to the full team. I think that that's table stakes when it comes to due diligence, or at least it was pre-pandemic. And then beyond that, some of my favorite thoughts that I've heard from people is one great one that I think I actually, I heard from one of our guests was to request the org chart with turnover for all positions, not just leadership. So it does a lot of different things. First and foremost, if there are certain positions that they struggle to fill, you can ask why. Is it a management issue? Is it just an expectation of up and out? Is it a Me Too problem? You can see anything from yellow to incredibly red flags just from that and not just focusing on the investment team, focusing across the board and in the ops side because a lot of your corporate information and know-how ends up coming from the back office. So I think the other ways there just to find and tease out reality versus what's stated. One of my favorites is to talk to former employees, former LPs, competitors, et cetera, and just get a sense of whether or not their actions and practices align with their words. And then those are congruent with the outcomes. I think you can get at integrity with this. I think you can also get at where maybe processes break down a little bit more than they would like to admit. And you can also find where there are blind spots, surprisingly. And it's not used as a gotcha and not everything's a red flag. It's just making sure that you are comfortable that there might be a risk, culturally speaking, within the organization. There are also, I will add, specific considerations by asset class and strategy. So some off the top of my head are hedge funds and how their risk management structures work. So are they appropriately resourced? Does the manager actually listen to their risk expert on staff? I have seen some instances where there's a lot of turnover at that position and it gives you pause. And it obviously just invites you to look deeper into that and to look at it as possibly a risk because obviously managing risk, especially on the hedge fund side, is important. On private equity, it's how they actually operate the businesses in oil and gas and other commodities. It's do they have a culture of safety? Do they have a culture of replenishment? If they're working in third world countries, how they navigate that. And all of these things inform both integrity and more broadly speaking, how they think about even working with you. And I think that there are a lot of instances where we would love to pretend that managers are going to react one way to this group of people, but different with us. And in reality, I don't think that you can just turn a blind eye to questionable practices that are going on across the organization, in my opinion, at least. And then I will add last point is, I don't want to call it a contentious one, but it is very direct. And it's something that I believe we don't talk about enough. And that is not allowing performance to launder bad behavior, like I said above, and also recognizing that inattentive communication is at the very least an orange flag. I get that there is a balance of making sure that you're not the difficult LP and there's a balance of letting them do their job. But we're also entrusted and LP specifically are entrusted with assets on behalf of a group of people, whether that be an organization with a specific mission or retirees. And it is incredibly important that we set high expectations for just how people interact and partner with our pools of capital. I guess that's the best way of saying it. Because it's not about working with me or anybody else specifically, although I think that that is important to have good interpersonal stuff. But it's also the do you value the organization and the capital and partnership? Or is it you just take the money and run? I've actually dealt with this before with one of those everybody wants to invest with them organizations. And when everything fell apart, they performed poorly both on the market downslide and the rebound. I couldn't get anybody on the phone. And still, the experience was so destructive in terms of just not even being willing. And it's not even just because we gave them money. It's also just from a understanding that you accepted money to invest on someone's behalf. And so you need to be communicative in my view. But I will say, I think it also points to other broader issues or it tends to beget other broader issues that then come up in the LPGP partnership. 
those are my thoughts. But wrapping this up, I'm actually really excited to bring on Kim and Jim because a lot of what I think about culture and leadership has actually been shaped by our two guests. And I found myself wanting to add stuff that I had heard from them over the years, but instead I'm going to stop. And I think we're going to bring them on because I think that honestly, hearing it directly from their mouths is going to be so much more rich and wonderful than what I could ever pair it. So with that. Kim and Jim, you know, tongue twisters. Our first rhyming guests are Kim and Jim. <laughs> I love what you said. I want to just reinforce a couple of points you made. Pizza parties do not create great culture. They can reinforce good culture. Similarly, I happen to personally be a big fan of open office cultures, but open office configurations don't create a collaborative, transparent sharing environment. They reinforce what you've already built. You can't force the latter without having built the former. So that's really important. And I love your Ryan Bailey quote. He's absolutely right. Data is by definition backward looking. So it is informative. It can be directional, but you got to do your own work and you got to spend time with these people. You got to spend a lot of time with these people. And that's why the vast Swenson, we always talk about hours and hours and hours to get to know these people. And in the Zoom world, I just think there's a lot of caution on that. You can't short circuit this or you're going to have a situation you had where communication dries up because you haven't really gotten to know how they tick. So with that, as Christy said, we are going to take a short break. As always, head to halftime, hear a little bit more from Franklin Templeton Alternatives and we will get Kim and Jim make up, up, the lights on, and ready to bring into studio. Stay tuned. Well, as promised, we are here with Dave Donahue. Dave is the co-head of U.S. Wealth Management for Franklin Templeton Alternatives. Dave, welcome to Capital Decanted. Thank you, John. Great to be here. And thanks for you and Kaya for everything you're doing for the alternative industry. Truly appreciated. Well, we are grateful for your participation. Franklin Temple Alternatives is the title sponsor for this season of Capital Decanted. And we are grateful for Franklin Templeton's long-standing devotion to client-first mentality, to ensuring that clients build diversified portfolios. So this was a really great match and partnership for our first season. Dave, maybe a couple of questions for you, because I think a lot of listeners might be unfamiliar with the sheer scale and scope and activity, M&A activity, of Franklin Templeton over the last several years. Tell us a little bit about just level set for us, the alternatives offerings and scale at Franklin Templeton. Absolutely, John. So alternatives are just a natural extension of what you described earlier as a client first mentality. For 75 plus years, we've been focused on helping clients solve problems in the investment landscape. This is a part of that. But you're right. A lot of folks aren't aware of our size and scale today. Alternatives by Franklin Templeton is now approximately $260 billion in assets, making us a top 10 player in alternatives globally. And we cover all the major food groups, from private real estate, private credit, private equity, and hedge funds. I think we do it in a unique way, focusing on acquiring best-in-class and differentiated institutional alternative managers, leaving them 100% alone from an investment perspective, and then bundling the resources of Franklin Templeton around them to help bring their business to the private wealth space. We're really excited about that. Fantastic. And maybe as we think about Franklin Templeton's history, I think most people would come to mind would be a very reputable and a longstanding history around public equity, mutual funds, international investing, particularly the Templeton portion of the brand. When was this moment of realization that you needed to diversify? And how has the organization gone about 
building out this stable of offerings you've referred to? It's a great question, John. I go back to our CEO, Jenny Johnson, who I know you know well. And Jenny's always thought long-term about this business. Franklin Templeton, if we flash back in time, invented the mutual fund in many ways, shape, and form to help democratize access to public markets for individuals. And we're doing that here. So about five years ago, we took an approach that said, traditional investments will be a key part of our business going forward, period. But there's this growing landscape of alternatives where technology, operations, and regulatory structure are making them more accessible for the individual. And we want to participate in that. So while a lot of traditional firms have dipped their toe into the pool of alternatives, we've really tried to take a cannonball into the deep end. We've done four key acquisitions over the last five years that have scaled our business to the $260 billion we're at today. And what's really important to us, John, is three things. One, I mentioned this earlier, best in class and differentiated institutional alternative asset managers. Every firm that we own in the space sourced 98 plus percent of their capital from the largest institutions globally. We don't want to change that. What we want to do is maintaining their investment integrity, find ways to package and bring those products to the wealth space. And we've dove in the deep end there by building a 40-person end-to-end distribution team in the U.S. focused on private markets and hedge funds to complement the work we do on the traditional side as a trusted brand to advisors. And the benefit we're seeing in conjunction and partnerships with firms like Kaya is really that trusted voice that we've built over decades is allowing us to help educate the next set of advisors to adopt alternatives on how to do so responsibly and appropriately for their client portfolios. Outstanding. And I think listeners, you hear that devotion to client first threaded through all of Dave's answers, which we really appreciate. Dave, obviously, you don't want to give away trade secrets or maybe bring out the crystal ball. But as you you mentioned, several food groups that you guys have been active in building out, as I said earlier, this stable of offerings. Are there gaps or particular aspirations that you think we might expect to see whether build versus buy Franklin Templeton continue to grow their business in? So if I think about gaps first, our gaps are in the real assets and the infrastructure space. We have a great real estate business through Clarion Partners, but we don't do real assets or infrastructure today. The other big notable gap is on the private equity side where we do growth and venture, where we do secondaries through Lexington Partners, but we don't have an LBO buyout business. I'd say our aspirations between those two gaps really do lie with the infrastructure space. And our CEO, Jenny, has been public about that. You have to do it with the right firm at the right price and the right time. But infrastructure is a future focus for us. And I would tell you, John, our overarching focus today is on execution. We've acquired the right managers. We've left them in place to do what they do best, which is manage capital. We've built our team. And now we're laser focused on being the right partner and friend to the distribution teams we've worked with for decades on the traditional side. Outstanding, Dave. Well, really good flyover of what you guys are doing. And it is very dynamic. There is kinetic energy to what you're building. And the enthusiasm really just comes through each time I talk to a portion of your organization. So on behalf of the entire Kaya community and all of our listeners, thank you again for your support and partnership for this podcast. And listeners, stay tuned. We're going to move on to our segment where we invite our guests in. Thanks again. Well, welcome back to this episode of Capital Decanted. And as promised, we are now joined in studio by our good friends, Jim Dunn and Kim Liu. Jim and Kim, welcome to Capital Decanted. Absolutely. Thank you. 
Thanks for having us. Well, you're the first guests that rhyme. So there's a first for everything. <laughs> we'll do our best to have an enjoyable Jim and Kim show over the next several minutes. Thank you so much for being part of the culture episode. Christy and I talk about our guests and spend a lot of time thinking through not just the episode topics, but also who would be good ambassadors for said topics. And just know that jokes aside, you're two leaders that we admire greatly. And we know invest heavily and think carefully about culture. We're just so grateful to be spending the next few minutes learning from you, as I know all of our listeners will too. So I'm going to start out and we're going to ask you guys collectively a couple questions and then we'll get into a little bit of rifle shooting and back and forth. But I want to start with a couple questions that maybe both of you, we could benefit from your answer. So I'll give it a shot first. We spent some time in the segment that we just completed, the setup, talking about the fact that culture can be a persistent comparative advantage. This idea that it's a unique edge and these strategies embody who we are, and it is a huge benefit from a retention and fulfillment perspective. Can you give us a sense for why, as an industry, despite all of that, I think that we assent to intellectually, that we've struggled, perhaps, relatively versus other industries to make this a top priority, to emphasize culture? Are there reasons for that, in your view? Jim, maybe I'll ask you to start. It's a great question, John. And I think maybe I'll handle it from a different perspective than asset managers. Maybe as an investor, I think the same rules apply. The same observations apply that culture is difficult. You see a lot of investors yelling at their managers, you need to do this better and do that better. And then you put the mirror on themselves. They do it pretty poorly as a group in general. And I think I've narrowed down to five things on the top of my mind that you're looking for that we don't have or we have too much of. One is politics is a reason why it doesn't work well. Competition. This is a competitive industry. There's huge agency issues that go along with investing. There's a lot of hubris. And then there's a lack of ownership for a lot of us. So if you think about Machiavellian politics for live and well in the clergy, the military, and higher ed, and for Kim and I, they teach it where we work. They're really good at Machiavellian politics. And as an investor, for us, everything we do is perpetuity. It's an extraordinary concept of how we invest. It's not a quarter to quarter or a month to month. It's if you build a building, you build a policy, you hire a manager. You've got to do it for a long time period. And every endowment's contextual. It depends on the nature of the institution, its history, its ambition. So they're all different. It's also extraordinary privilege. But when you think about the people who work at endowments, for the most part, are underpaid. We don't have the same efficiencies as a Goldman, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. So you're not in it at an endowment for profit. You're not in it for the salary. The top people get paid very, very well. But the rank and file investors at an endowment or a foundation don't get paid dramatically well relative to their peers on the street. If you think of the big endowments or the big asset managers, they're like Noah's Ark. They have two of everything. A small endowment has one. They have to be scrappy. They have to be nimble. The second thing about politics is it's very competitive. And endowments are very competitive as well. Colleges are very competitive. They compete for faculty, for students, for the, on the football field, on the baseball field, on the soccer field, on the basketball court. And endowments compete. So Nakubo matters. It shouldn't matter. One-year Nakubo return should not matter to anybody. But there's people that get paid on where they fit and what quartile. So I think that's the competitive part. I think the governance piece of it also, show me a good endowment and I'll show you a great board of trustees. That's how it works. And a lot of endowments, they have the seagull management team, the theory of seagulls. They come in, they eat them french fries, they crap all over the place, they fly away. That's not a good role. You can't manage an endowment four times a year, 90 minutes, pick managers, pick sandwiches, and then play golf. That's not a good fiduciary model. 
those are the agency issues. But even in endowments, people fall in love with a the manager. They fall in love with Ray Dalio or Ashton Kutcher. And that's an agency issue as well. So I think that's the other piece of governance. The last two things I would say is hubris. We all know that this industry has a lot of big egos in it. That goes back to that culture. But when you have those egos, there's not a lot of independent thought at these places. You have a Stepford-like environment where everyone's trying to do the same thing. They all have the Yale model. They all have the Columbia model. They all want to do the same thing in the same managers. And then they all have the same returns. And they wonder why they're not extraordinary. So I think that's the big thing. And then the last thing is ownership. You don't own part of Columbia's endowment or Harvard's endowment. How do you keep people over a long time period? And I think that's kind of the recruit, retain, motivate talent at institutional investors. It's really hard to see someone stay at CalPERS or CalSTRS or, or an endowment unless they want that CIO title. And not everyone can be CIO. So they, that lack of ownership culture is really important for a lot of institutional investors. Well, I'm going to steal this Seagull governance model with attribution, I will proudly say. And by the way, I'll try not to be offended that I have a man crush on Ashton Kutcher, but I'll just let that one go. But Kim, what do you think gets in our way from a culture perspective as an industry? So I don't disagree with anything that Jim has said, and I think that plays a role in it. I also think that the part of it is the same things that happen with how people invest. The benefits that accrue to an organization because of paying attention and giving time and care to culture accrue to you over the long term when you get rewarded for what happens in the short term. So people lose sight of that's something that you have to invest in. And it takes a lot of time and energy. And it takes a lot of time and energy from the senior person to push that down and be consistent over time. And because people come and go, it's constantly reinforcing this thing that might not pay dividends for years. But then once it starts to pay dividends, it pays dividends forever. But sometimes people don't have the longevity to stick around for that. So I think that's part of it. I think in this industry, when People want to see tangible rewards for the action. Sometimes it's not so tangible. And I think that's a hard thing for people to hold on to. And I think finally, being very good at culture requires everybody, especially the senior person, to be a little self-aware, to have a little self-awareness around their own biases, a little self-awareness around their own shortcomings. And I'm not sure people step back and Jim made this point and spend a little time doing any self-reflection. So if you don't have a sense of your own place in this market and your own place within your organization and your own values and thought processes, it's really hard to make that something loud in your office, in your industry. So I think that combination of things exacerbate what is a really hard thing to do. And culture is really hard. And it's really hard when the people are changing all the time, when the market's changing all the time, when what you're being asked to do changes over time. I think that it's not surprising that it's hard. You think about it. I just think about your family. When we all lived in the same place, your grandparents had a really good job of keeping culture together in your family. And then everybody started moving to new places and new areas. And it got really hard to keep the culture together in your families. And it's the same way. It becomes more dispersed. People start doing different things. Then a lot of work has to be put into holding it together. So I think it's a harder job that you can't see the results from really quickly. I love that because it seems like it's so easy in theory, just like when you say a top level, but the actual day-to-day, it's the action ultimately. But building on that to each of you, how have your views of culture evolved throughout your career, maybe from the start to where you are now as builders of the culture within your organizations? So I think that early in the career, we were consumers of culture. Someone else was setting the culture and you got to decide for yourself. I don't think, at least I didn't 
originally believed that I had a lot of influence over the culture when I was younger. You decided to buy a culture or not to buy a culture. And quite honestly, when I was younger, I was buying whatever the culture was because I didn't really have a choice. And quite honestly, culture was bad everywhere in the investment industry. It was how much can we make you work harder? There's a lot of FaceTime, lots of craziness that was just the culture in all these places that we worked. And you did not feel empowered to change it. You just were consumers of culture. So I think there's a lot of all the things that felt really painful and felt like it got in the way of you being successful when you were younger. You get older and you get into leadership positions and you think you're going to fix them. And I always say to myself, I think about it again, back to family. You think about all the things your parents did to you and you say, when I have my children, I'm going to be different. I'm going to raise my children differently than my parents did. And then, of course, you create another set of problems. I got raised in a family where you do what I say. Stop. You don't talk back. You don't ask a lot of questions. I'm going to let my children express themselves. And now they do. And that's annoying. I don't really like this new culture we have. So I think that we try to fix the things that we think were problematic in the cultures that we were raised in and we create new ones. So I think that's the evolution. But I do think the evolution is much more of a blending of people's personal values and even their home life into their work because we do spend so much time there. So people no longer feel a need to divorce the two. Increasingly, young people want to work at a place where they feel expresses the values that they have when they're home. And I don't think that that was the case when I was younger. I wanted to go to the place that had the best reputation and paid the most money. I didn't really think about culture. Young people think about culture very differently now. And I think I care about culture a lot more. I think I have a greater sense of responsibility for creating an environment that feels fair and inclusive. And it feels like it actually leads to good, healthy decision making in a way that was very top down before. And I probably am now thinking about culture in a way that I really believe in the power of lots of different ideas. And so I have to find a way to get them in the room. And I don't think that was important before. And so I think it evolves over time and I think it'll continue to evolve. We'll find out that we don't really want all those voices and they'll go back to being a little more top down. <laughs> they always swing back in another direction. We'll see. I think it's no surprise I'm going to echo a lot of Kim's comments because she's really smart. But I think one of the cool things about our job, actually, is that we get to see cultures from all different managers across the globe. So we see thousands of managers over our career. And I have a lot of respect for Bridgewater. I would never work there. It's a culture that I just don't get behind. But you see all these cultures, and what we do is we take little things from everywhere we go to, and we adopt it as our culture. And that's the cool thing about what we do, is we get to see the best of all these incredible entrepreneurs. Everybody who does this is an entrepreneur at some point, even the big ones. So I do think that's cool. I think what has changed, Christy's point, I think I've learned not to confuse culture with collateral. Yes, my millennials really appreciate free lunch, but they don't wake up at 7 a.m. to catch a flight or 6 a.m. to catch a flight to play foosball in the break room. That's not the culture. So you got to be more inspiring than a free bacon turkey bravo. You got to be more inspiring than that. And you can't replicate the energy on a college campus. So for us, that's cool. Now, we're not on campus anymore, but working at a university and you get all the trappings of that, I'm a better dad, I'm a better husband, I'm a better entrepreneur, I'm a better investor because I've had all those experiences that were not officially related to investments. But hearing my Angela speak when she was a teacher on campus was really moving for me as an investor. I'm a better person. So the other thing about culture, as Kim pointed out, it was also it's about who you surround yourself with. Who are the people on your team? And you need a manager like us to be motivated to push boundaries, to think differently. Working in a cool office is awesome and so is free lunch, but a purposeful culture has become much more important. 
people who work for us want to make sure that our mission, our values match what they want to do in their life. Risk still matters. All that stuff still matters. But I think the ability to have more accountability, more transparency, understand the KPIs. We share our board deck with our board, but also with our employees. They see all of the metrics that the board sees. But you've got to do things like extend parental leave. We had maternity leave. We didn't have parental leave for dads. I had to fix that. And I think all of those things, we don't have a carbon footprint here. We buy offsets and we do it as a benefit for the individuals who work here as well. So all of those things work through. But if you prioritize leadership and diversity and inclusion and giving back and all your clients are doing the same thing, I think you get a better outcome at the end of the day. And people are going to get up at 6 a.m. to catch that flight rather than having a really cool foosball contest. We have that too, by the way, but we have one guy that wins every year. It's annoying. There's always the one foosball guy. I know what you mean. Maybe try to combine a couple points that I've already said. Kim talked about this being hard and it takes everybody. And Jim, you talked about that said, the leader really needs to model it. And both those things can live in coexistence. Kim, interestingly, several leaders ago, I had a CEO that said that he felt his job was to change the historical culture or challenge the historical culture. I can't believe, by the way, you've been at Columbia three years. We've been in the twilight zone with COVID. So when I looked at that to remind myself, you're not so new anymore, but you're still fairly new. You're newer than Jim, at least. So when you think about the balance between adopting and fanning the flame of the existing culture of the organization you're joining versus challenging, creating new boundaries, improving. How did you process and plan for your influence when you sat down in that seat for the first time? So let's start by saying that it feels like I just got here. So those three years went by so fast. But your point about coming into a culture that exists already and taking stock of it, I started out by just trying to figure out what exactly was the culture and why did the culture develop the way that it did and how much of the culture was a function of the university, how much of the culture was a function of the prior leadership, how much was a function of the industry. I think culture develops for a lot of different reasons and whether there was something about the culture that was consistent with the way the portfolio was constructed that I needed to understand. I spent a little bit of time on a listening tour just understanding why things were the way they were. And then we went through an exercise as a team to create core values. And I said to them early, values are not the least common denominator thing. So they weren't going to be, this is the thing we all agree on, that obviously the values had to be things that I felt that I could be a leader of. So I had to believe in them, but that we should as a team agree to what we were going to do. So we sat down and thought about what were the values that were going to define our culture that we thought were not the same as everybody else, one of our values couldn't be work hard. Because who says that we don't work hard? We sit around and be lazy. No one says that. So the things that we chose to define who we were going to be as a culture had to be something that was distinguishing that other people might make a different decision. We narrowed that down to five things. And then it was five things that were super important to me. And they were also important to the team that we could keep going back to and saying, Remember, this is who we said we were going to be. Remember, we said that we we're going to be. So they were, I'll be embarrassed if I don't get these all right. But it started out with stewardship. There's a lot of people who believe that we have an investment management company and our job is to make returns. And we don't even have to look at the institution that the money goes to. But for us, it felt really important to me that, no, we were stewards of Columbia University, that we were going to keep in mind all the time that we should reflect 
the values of that institution and that we should think about them when we were making investment decisions. We were an institution that has historically been very thoughtful around technology, art, and science. Both had to be important factors for us. There was a lot of analytics that we historically did, and there was lots of models. But this success in this industry was about art, and we were going to respect them both and how we thought about every time we made a decision. We talked a lot about every decision we made was going to be purposeful, that we would talk about it and we would decide proactively to do it or not do it and not have unintentional bets and not have unintentional decisions. We talked about the fact that we were going to have shared responsibility and that we were going to be honest with each other and really hold each other to account on things. So it was an imperative for us to speak up. Intellectual honesty is how we talked about it. And someone should feel that they have a right and an obligation to challenge their peers. And because we do have shared responsibility for this portfolio and the other person had to respect that and receive that. And that every time something was brought up that we would remind ourselves that that's who we said we were going to be and that's who our values were going to be. It was very much important to me because I am a person who believes very passionately in the importance of mentorship and coaching. So we had to have a culture that honored that. I had only ever worked at mission-based organizations. So it was important for me to have a tie back to a mission. And I felt that is the thing that makes people get up and get on that six o'clock flight, understanding what that work got tied to. So it was all this, how we were going to treat each other as people, why the work we were doing was important, how we were going to give each other attaboys. I didn't want the attaboy to be about returns because so much of that is outside of our control. It had to be about the way the process worked and how we treated each other and just things that we could remind each other about all the time. And I really do think that for me, it really felt like let's just respect what's here and decide what things here just developed, not because they actually added value, not because they actually made people feel better about the job, not because they actually made us work harder, but they just were things. And get rid of those because those are not part of the cultures that were important and be really thoughtful about culture. And I think then it makes it easier to lead that organization because we all have agreement on who we're going to be. But that's a work. And a lot of people were like, that's what you're spending time at your offsite doing. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we're spending time at our offsite doing. It takes time and attention. And I feel like it's made a huge difference. We coalesce around those things. We think about them every time we make a decision. And I think we're better for it. When you think about your team and the values that y'all have built together, I know one of the big parts of investing is knowing your biases and avoiding them where you can, both in terms of how you built the team and then how you guys move forward. How do you think about avoiding those biases or getting people to at least understand them and move forward and not be impacted by them so much? So I will say that it was way easier for me when I was at Carnegie because the team was smaller and it was a team that I was involved in the hiring of everybody on that team. So you start out with understanding a little bit more intimately about people and their biases. I also created a culture. I think it's important to have a culture where people bring their whole selves to work and that they bring their authentic selves to work because I want to bring my authentic self to work because I feel like it's exhausting not to. And the most important thing in my life is my kids. And if I can't talk about them, then it's going to be hard work for me. So if you start out believing that, then it's very easy to see what people's biases are because you know their history, you know who they are, you know how they answer questions, and you can challenge them on their biases. We started out at Carnegie by, I asked everybody, 
to write down what they thought their biases were and then what they thought they needed from the team to offset their biases. Because it's hard. You can't do it for yourself. If my bias is that I don't like a particular style of manager, when we're looking at that manager, I need somebody who loves those kind of managers to always be paired with me on that team so that we all ask the right questions. So a little self-awareness is good. And like I said, trying to ask somebody to do that on their own, I think is unfair. You have a bias for a reason. You trying to self-regulate yourself doesn't seem fair. Then I get to Columbia, much bigger team. I don't know them as intimately. They didn't appear to me, at least they weren't at first sharing with me their personal lives. So I couldn't always have a view in it. The office was set up in a horrible way that made it really hard for me to see what was going on, much harder. So it's probably taken this whole three years for me to have a better sense of who each person is. And it's probably changed the way I ask questions to different people because it appears that they have biases and I'm trying to get at them. Probably in a little bit more time, I'll ask people that same exercise of them trying to, for themselves, identify what their biases are and see if it jives with what I think they are. I have to say at Carnegie, most people knew exactly what their biases were, which was interesting. And their recommendations of what they needed from the team to help them were smart and clever and things we could do. There were a couple of people who I was like, huh, I didn't know that that was a thing for you. And that's good to know because we should work on that. So I think sometimes you can just ask people. I know what my biases are. I know if you look long and hard at my background, you could probably figure them out too. But it's interesting for people to recognize them and think for themselves about what it takes for them to find balance. And it's okay if everybody on your team has biases and they're not the same, then you're going to make great decisions. You just have to make sure you're building a team that has a little of everything. Finding those biases and fanning the flames of that diversity within the decision process is so key. Jim, I know you think a ton about both your current and prospective employees and the types of character that you want and that you demand. Our mutual good friend, Ted Sides, I re-listened to your episode with him, and I've heard you use these similar language elsewhere, this idea of extraordinary people with ambitious goals that put the portfolio first. You use the phrase humble and hungry. By the way, I know you're a proud wildcat, but you've been a deke adopted long enough down in Wake Forest. I had a buddy mentor that used to say humble and hungry all the time, and guess where he went to school? It's a Jay Wright. He was a deacon. Oh, a deacon. Okay, well, it's a Jay Wrightism. Oh, okay, so that's a Jay Wright thing up in Villanova too. Well, anyway, I thought it was like a Wake Forest thing but humble and hungry. So when you're thinking about hiring, how do you look and how do you go about sussing out those elements of behaviors? And then once they're on board, what are you observing to determine whether they're succeeding in living out and embodying those elements? It's a great question, John. I think you mentioned the Simon Sinek golden circle, the why, everybody has a why. And he uses that framework to talk about how great companies start or how certain entrepreneurs are better or public speakers. And what makes them great is how they think. They think about why they do it, not what they do and how they do it. And it goes the same for managers and for employees. But if you ask a hedge fund manager what they do, yeah, their relative value with a catalyst or how you do it. We work really hard. We have this model. Why are you a hedge fund manager? Most of them just stutter. And they look at me like they don't know what the question is. That's not in the pitch book. Why do you do what you do? And Everyone who we hire has a why, and we always start with a why. So for me, I'm a first-generation college student. My parents didn't go to college. My grandparents are immigrants. I went to school in a Pell Grant, Stafford Loans, academic athletic scholarship. I don't go to school without an endowment. I get to help kids like me go to schools like Wake Forest and Packer Collegiate and all these great schools that we manage my assets for. 
So for me, that's my why. And I think that's really important. But what we look for beyond the why is we look for two things. We look for grit and confidence. And it's really hard to find that combination of grit and confidence because grit, they don't teach that in business school. You got to have that. And most of the people that have grit have gone through some stuff. And people who go through stuff don't always have the confidence. And what we find is that the people that have grit and confidence have a quiet confidence. It's a natural expression of ability, it's expertise, it's self-regard, but they also, most of them are mission-driven. So we navigate to those kids, people that we hire. We've been hiring a lot of young folks recently, so I'm the old person in the room right now, which is really disconcerting to me. I used to be the young one, now I'm the OG, which is not a comfortable spot for me. Jim, I know that pain. I know that pain. (laughs) Yeah, well, you started when you were 12. I started a lot later than that. So I think the other thing is we navigate to, again, where we live and where we work we're not in Wall Street. We're not in Washington, D.C. or Boston or Chicago or L.A. And I lived and worked in all those places. So Winston, you have a different advantage here. It's really important to find people that want to live in this community, want to serve this mission. But also we're surrounded by these great leaders. We have Dr. Michael Lamb, who studies Augustinian leadership. He teaches leadership and character. We have this guy, Dr. Pat Sweeney, who used to work at West Point, talk about leadership. But I also spent a lot of time with the coaches here at Wake. So I'll go to practice and listen to Coach Clausen, the football coach, talk about what he's going to do with the morning practice plan. Or my son plays basketball for Wake Forest. He's on the team. And I'll go to practice and hear Coach Forbes talk about it. We have this great coach, Jen Averill, who's been a field hockey coach. She was a seven-time college All-American. She's won three national championships. She is the best leader we have on campus. And I'll listen to her talk to her team. A lot of that has how they recruit players. We're doing the same thing. We're trying to recruit, motivate, retain. And I think that's what a lot of the things that we've tried to do, we've built around what Coach Averill and others at the Wake Forest Athletic Department call the seven C's, which is you got to recruit for the culture you have. You got to have toughness. You got to be passionate about it. They got to have an attitude about chip on their shoulder, want to be competitive, want to win. That's a unique part of what we do here. It's not about the paycheck, candidly. You can get paid a lot more to go work for Kim. It's got to be contagious. You got to get the next person excited. Unity and purpose, we call it. You got to believe and protect, perform, provide. That unity is really important. We're all rowing the same direction. If you're not on the team, it makes it really hard to be an outsider. You got to be consistent. You can't be complacent. We really put a lot of emphasis on process. If the process works, we don't care what the returns are. We don't really care. We want to stick to the process, be disciplined. Last year's Nakuba numbers have no impact on the future returns of this portfolio. The last three or four C's are communication. Everybody here is a storyteller. Everybody's in sales. You got to tell a story. You can't be a wallflower here. It just doesn't work. As Christy knows, we have an open architecture office. I sit on a trading desk with other people. You can't hide here. You got to be able to communicate. You got to have a connection to it too, whether it's Winston-Salem or the mission or whatever we're doing. If you don't have a connection to it in some frame, and we have two Indiana grads on investment team, a young lady sits next to me, another guy, and they're connected with each other through basketball. Bobby Knight, we had a moment of silence on the trading desk when Bobby Knight passed. That's unique, but that's the connection they have. So that's important. And then finally, you got to care. You got to care whether you win or lose. You got to care about the person next to you. You got to care about what our clients are doing and what the mission is. And if you have those seven things, we find it pretty easy. And when you focus on that humble and hungry and that next shot mentality, it works pretty well. I will tell you, though, I make mistakes hiring all the time. And I've done it way too often. I've missed on a lot of great people. And I've also hired some people that I probably shouldn't have hired for lots of bad reasons. And The mistake that I've learned over the many years of hiring people is I got to hire slower and fire faster. When I know the person's not a good fit, you got to cut them loose and it's good for them. It's good for you. No one wins when you try to make it work. 
And I've also tried to hire that superstar PM and they don't last. I didn't do the work. I didn't do the due diligence. I didn't get to know them well. So I think the lessons I've learned through all of this process is hire slow and fire fast. One of my board members asked me when I joined Columbia if I thought I was good at hiring or firing because you had to be good at one of them. You could not be bad at both. <laughs> Same applies to hiring managers too, Kim. Fire fast managers. Absolutely. Yeah, it works too. As you think about the motivating and retaining of your team, how does compensation philosophy fit into that? So how do you incentivize people to prioritize clients, to think long-term, to take measured risk where appropriate, to innovate? Because I know y'all are pretty innovative. How do you think about that in terms of compensation? You can't win with money. It's really a lesson I've learned the hard way many, many times. My father used to say, you can marry more money in a second than you can earn in a lifetime, but you earn every penny. And the jobs that I got paid the most were the jobs I hated the most as well. So I think that's where we've tried to focus on what are the other things that we can think about around priorities, risk-taking, and put it all together so that we all have the same incentives. And the unique part of what we do is we have ownership of the firm. So I can give that as an opportunity for a multi-asset investor. They can go and work for Kim, but they'll never get equity in Columbia. That just doesn't happen. But I have the ability to give them equity and help them build up from the ground floor and be entrepreneurs themselves. And for many on my team, that equity potential could be life-changing, really life-changing. So it's really a valuable asset for those that really understand it. But I think they also think about it, when you have equity to give, it's really valuable and you don't give it out to everybody right away. They got to provide value. And that's like the litmus test of other team members. Is that person equity worthy? I don't know. So I think that's the paradox of how the equity works. It's hugely valuable, but it's also hard to give away if you really value it. So you have to be very careful with it. The other challenge is the paradox of skill in the endowment space. Everybody's got good people. Everybody's got really invested, talented people. So how do you take that and bring it to your team and give them a voice? And that's what we find is that we're really good with that mid-tier person that has worked somewhere else, maybe started their career somewhere else. Now they have two young children and they're paying $75,000 for kindergarten in Boston, it's snowing for seven months a year, they can come here, run a pretty big part of the portfolio, have better weather, get three times the house for a third the price, and have a voice and have equity. So those pieces have all come together. I think what we tried to do early on, Christy, was the money ball. Can we do this, do that, give them a little more here? That has never worked for us, and it doesn't equate into the results either. We don't see that at the end of the day. It's all about better returns for our clients. And we didn't see that this person giving them $100,000 more wasn't moving the needle there. The other thing that you alluded to also is, again, going back to culture. Do you have the right office space? Do you have low turnover on the team? Do you have diversity of thought? Do you build in things like mentorship? And how do you build trust? You have to do it outside of the office sometimes. And then the last thing is for us, it's we've built here, back to your innovative concept is, we want people to be wrong. We want them to fail. We want them to make mistakes because that's where you learn. So we've built a safe space to make bad investments. Uh, that's probably not going to win me a lot of clients. But what you find is that you learn more from a bad investment and you don't make it again. And we do after action reports on all of our investments that don't work and the ones that do work too and say, okay, what do we learn? And that safe space is exciting for people. I can go do something that's unique. I can go do a machine learning manager. I can go do self-storage. I can do a co-investment over here that really I got to learn more about. So I think that's the part that we build this safe space. And what we say, and I quote my wife a lot, my wife's a nurse. And if you see my wife at the hospital, you've had a really bad day. She specializes in gunshot wounds, amputations, really bad burns. If you see my wife at the hospital, you've had a bad day. 
So when I come home and I have a bad day, she's like, stop it. You had a great day with a bad moment. No one died today in your endowment. I had people die. So we have the same thing. We have good days with bad moments. We have good managers with a couple bad moments. So learn from those bad moments. And that's the safe space that a lot of people attracted to us say, I want to take risks, especially in early and mid my career. I want to do some cool investments. I want to go invest in almond farms in Australia, water rights in Colorado. That's the stuff that we find really exciting. And we don't always get it right, but we learn a lot from every deal we do. And every person gets a chance to put some risk in. And I think that's also the compensation they get from coming to a place like Verger versus saying, I'm going to go work at Goldman Sachs and just put the portfolio on simmer. That's not as exciting as what we do. Jim, just remind me that our double date must be in a social setting. I don't want to see your wife and her vocation. <laughs> I'll take note of that. If you see her in scrubs, you want to have her shower before you shake her hand. Exactly. <laughs> Kim, I want to double click on one element I know that is very important to you of building good culture, which is this idea of constructive feedback. I love how you talk about this publicly. You've talked about constructive feedback as a gift, meaning it's a reflection or evidence that you care for that person, that they have a potential to be a star is what you've said, because otherwise, why bother with the time? It's it awkward. No one likes to give constructive feedback. It ain't fun. Thanksgiving's coming up and we're going to have plenty of it and it's not fun. So why do you think this is such a key ingredient of cultivating a healthy culture? So I think it's important for a lot of reasons because it teaches the person to receive the information and it teaches the giver to give it in a way that can be consumed. And that's what we do when we debate investments. You have to be able to debate those things in a way and challenge each other. So people have to be taught because it's a two-way relationship. You have to both give it in a way that people can consume and also receive it in the intention it was given. So I always talk about it. I start out with the relationship with the people on a team by saying, I am a person who believes very passionately in constructive feedback. Feedback is a two-way street. The person that I give the most feedback to is the person that I love the most, my children. The people who give me the most feedback that I don't like hearing is my children. I have had to learn how to receive it and not get upset about it. And I have had to learn how to give it in a way that it can be consumed. So know that if I give constructive feedback, it is because I believe that it makes a difference in your life. Because I would not give it, if I don't think that you can do it, then why would I waste time and energy? We have limited time and resources. Why would I waste time there? So if we go into this with me saying to you, I'm about to tell you this thing that I think will make you a better person, make you a better investor, make you a better member of this team. I am saying to you that I think you have the capacity to be that. I am saying that I think that you have the capacity to be exceptional. And I'm trying to be supportive and help you get there. You don't have to agree. You can come back to me and tell me why I am wrong or right about that. And we can have a great, healthy back and forth. And we can both walk away with hopefully being better and having a better understanding of each other. And if that becomes the norm in an organization, the way you debate managers change. The way you talk about a good investment changes. The way you think about the portfolio and how we should be expecting the most from managers change. So I think it starts in-house. You create this feeling that we're all trying to be the best. We want our managers to be the best. We want our children to be the best. So we're going to be actively engaged in that process with them and take it for that. Because really, feedback is not fun for anybody. I'm never having a good time telling somebody they're bad at something that they're doing. That's not fun. Unless you're, there's certain people who enjoy that. I am not that person that enjoys that. 
as soon as you tell me that you don't want it, I'm going to stop giving it to you because I'm not having fun doing it. So then you're going to stay continuing to do the thing that you're doing that I don't think is valuable. And other people in a team probably don't think is valuable because I'm not just giving feedback from my perspective. I'm probably giving feedback that I've heard from the team. So everybody thinks this is a problem and you're going to ignore it. And that's going to have implications. Just like if all of your LPs are telling the manager the same thing they think is a problem and you ignore it, eventually it's going to be a problem for you because everybody stumbles at some point. And if you've created a culture where your LPs don't believe that you grow, they're not going to continue to support you. So I just think it's healthy as investors to think about it that way, to think about why am I always striving to be better than I was the day before? I can't always figure that out for myself. So when other people offer that to me, then it's helpful. It's a gift. So I've also got to be, like I said, learn how to receive it and model every time somebody gives me constructive feedback. I have to be effusive about accepting it, even when it's painful for me, so I can model that good behavior and acknowledge that someone has disagreed with me and has told me something that I don't necessarily want to hear and stay consistent with that. It's not easy, which is why I can be sympathetic when other people don't necessarily love it. But in order for us to get really good at it, we got to trust each other. So it forces us to build a culture of trust. You earn that over time. So over time, you get better and better at it, and then you become a better and better team. And then people enjoy their day more and more as soon as that starts to happen. So I think it's self-fulfilling and it creates more and more goodwill over time. But it's not easy. Never starts out as easy. Well, and switching gears from applying culture within your team to thinking about it in terms of managers, John was talking about a due diligence survey earlier where basically the gist of it was that the qualitative aspects of manager selection and due diligence are more predictive of sustainable outperformance than quantitative factors. Have you found this to be the case in your experience? And if so, is there any advice on how you evaluate managers for the more qualitative aspects of culture within their organization? So I agree 100% because I think track record tells you how a manager did in the environment that exists in the past and what tools they used in that environment to be successful. It's the qualitative stuff that tells you whether or not they have the capacity to be successful in the future. Because I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I know it's not going to be the same as the past. So people who rely exclusively on the quantitative metrics of the past are not doing the work to figure out whether or not they're going to be successful in the future. So when I'm looking at the future, I think about a few things that are important, but most of them go back to whether or not the business is sustainable. You want to think about all the things that make the decision-making and the business sustainable. And all of that is around culture. Do people feel like they're being treated fairly, being paid in a way that they believe is fair? Do they believe that they have the right level of decision-making that they were promised when they were brought in? I think there are different cultures. There are some cultures where all the analysts do is feed information to the PM and the PM makes the ultimate decision. They knew that coming in. They love the fact that they get to do research all the time and they don't have the responsibility for making a decision. Everybody's happy. But if they thought they were going to make a decision and now they don't, unsustainable culture. It's trying to get to what are the different things that people could think about and expect that are not aligned and that might create instability in the business. Because if people are not on the same page and if the culture is not strong, then you're going to get more turnover because people are going to leave. And so we're trying to get to that. We're trying to get to whether or not the type of people that they've hired are consistent with what it takes to be successful 
in the asset class, the sector, the geography that they've chosen, because that's all in how they've hired, how they've attracted, how they've retained, how they've rewarded people, that they've kept the right people. So all of that tells me whether they can be successful going forward, not their track record. And I don't care how great of an investor you are. If everybody walks out the door every year, it's going to be really hard to outperform. I just don't believe that's possible. And if everybody is really resentful and all they're doing all the time is trying to re-up the person sitting next to them and hide stuff and be evasive, I don't see how you can be successful in the long run. If you are not aligned with your LPs at all, and you're making very selfish decisions, then that capital is not sticky. I don't know how you're going to be successful in the long run. It's really hard to unravel these decisions. So I'm not trying to figure out the things about your culture that are good in the short run. I want to know how they create stability in your organization over the long term. And I think that's what creates our performance ultimately. So we're going to spend a little time talking about the strategy and whether the people that you've chosen the way you reward, the way you retain, the way you choose them, the way you fire them when it's the right time to fire them. Just like Jim said, you need to get rid of people as quickly as you can when they're poisonous to your culture. So you want to see evidence of that. You want to see alignment. You want to see good business building. You want to see that they care enough about their relationships with all the different stakeholders that they have in their organization. They built in systems that treat them with respect because all of them are fragile. If you don't, all of them help her performance. Just going to lean on Kim's comments. I think it's brilliant. I think when you look at Carlisle or Elliott or Paulson at 100 million, that's an entirely different firm than it was at 9, 10 billion. And that exercise is different. My late father will say, never marry a model. They'll always leave you. My mother hated that quote. She always hated that quote. She was like, you did. You married a model. That's right. And still I'm here. He's the <laughs> exception to the rule. But the quantitative stuff, at 100 million is a different quantitative model that you can't say that's the same firm and the numbers don't allow it either. So I do think that the qualitative, to Kim's point, it's really important and that part is really hard, but it's critical. Yeah, I love Kim's quote, this idea that focusing on the areas of the business that make it sustainable, which is culture. It's such a good way to put it, Jim. I want to give you the last word here, extending that question a little bit on how do you tease this out? How do you test for it? How do you evaluate it? Because that's the tough part. Of course, we can all assent to it. But David Swenson used to talk about these hours-long golf outings on the Yale golf course that he would put these managers through. And Sandra Robertson, I love her quote. She's over at Oxford Endowment. She talks about the fact that you just got to be comfortable missing out on jerks. I don't care how good of investors they are. That life's too short to invest with jerks. I don't want to deal with it. So as you think about your questions and your tactics very practically at Verger to suss out these values, alignment, integrity, what have you found works or gives you a good insight into whether they are aligned with you? Those are two great investors. So they are absolutely spot on. And I'm not as good a golfer as you and your son are, obviously. So golf's not going to be my litmus test. You know, I think it comes back down to the no jerk policy. We just have to have that policy. And this business is hard because there's a high propensity of jerkitude in asset management. So we asked questions, like one example, I'm going to give away to your millions of followers this question. So no manager will now all be prepared for it. So I'm giving away some of my secret sauce here. But I always ask the first question I ask, where did I go to school? Do you know where I went to college? And you'd be surprised how managers want me to spend an hour of my time, plus the hour or two hours I spent to pre-read and do all the work you sent me, and then have them spend one minute to understand where I went to school. The follow-up question is, where do you think you fit in our portfolio? What do you know about us? Now, 
I don't ask the marketing person because they've done that work. They're pros. But ask the PM who they brought along for the final, for the big meeting with the CIO or CEO. And if they haven't spent one minute on me, this is going to be a pretty short meeting. You don't really want to be here. And our business, asset management for endowments, this product is sold. It's not bought. You've got to sell me on what you're going to do and bring to my portfolio. So I think that's one thing. Another question I always ask, this actually came from Swenson, I believe, is you ask them to tell them about a time where you handled a moral dilemma in your portfolio or in your firm. And if they don't have an example off the top of their head, that's probably a red flag. Somebody else is doing the problem. And then we always ask them the why. I think where we have struggled candidly with some of these asset management firms, especially, I would say, some of the hedge funds and specifically the multi-team, multi-portfolio hedge funds where you've got big teams, thousands of PMs with great returns, is that these combinations, these lift-outs, bringing these teams in, rarely is it integrated. They all still think they're free agents and they all doing their own thing and the turnover is really high. And it's really hard to understand where's the value coming from in this portfolio of 7,000 teams? Is it the top down, bottom up? Is it risk management? And how you govern this? There's always little cliques and clacks and who does what. So I think that's really where we struggle. And the only way to do that is to basically what we've done is we've gone to our peers. We call our friends at other places and say, tell me your perception of this firm or this fund or this person. So our database, our CRM that we track manager is object-based. We don't track funds. We track people. And when we find out, hey, you used to intern at Bear Stearns, what years? We can go in and look at Bear Stearns and say, who was there in 98 or 85? And we find out that you just got coffee. You weren't even actually on the desk. You didn't have a seat. That's going to be a different conversation next time. So I do think all of that is important. We try to avoid the group think, but we want to also get input from our peers because we have a lot of smart people who are in this industry that have done this a long time and are really good at it. And the last thing we try to stay away from, candidly, is back to the culture point. We don't want to read some cooked up generic sounding mission statement that's on your wall that no one's ever read and you walk by it every day, but we want to see the real behaviors. So we do want to go to your offices. We still travel. My entire team is on the road today, except for me, which is dangerous for the portfolio since I'm in charge. But got people in London and LA and San Francisco this week, and they're walking through the parking lot. What's everyone driving? Let's walk through the coffee shop. How are they treating the receptionists? How are they treating their other investors? That still matters to us. And I think that's still a big part of what we do. And it's not just a database and what Williams is doing or Harvard or Columbia. Well, Columbia's pretty smart, but everybody else, we don't follow them. So I think it's really about you got to go and see the whites of the eyes and understand the culture and be in the office. And even post-COVID, it's gotten more important because what you saw in COVID was a exposure of every fraud, fad, and failure. And it took a couple months, a couple weeks, but WeWork and SPACs and you name your Silicon Valley bank, it just took a little bit of rate hike and everything got exposed. And that's what we have to do is we have to avoid those. I can make bad investment decisions. I can't invest in Bernie Madoff because no donor would give me any money. So we have to avoid those frauds, those failures, those fads. And you got to do that in person still. So much sage advice, which is a great way to end it. I'm going to steal Kim's words here and turn them around and say the last 50 minutes were such a gift. So thank you, Jim and Kim, for spending some time with us. I hope listeners, you learned as much as we did from these two amazing leaders and Stay tuned. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with the last sip. Wow, Christy, that was so exciting. Jim and Kim, as we said a number of times, just superstars in the way that they think about and craft great culture. Just so much great advice, as I said. What were your big takeaways from that conversation? Anything really strike you? I like the medicines, how thoughtful both of them are, both from what I know behind the scenes and then also within this interview of how 
they think about building a team. And we talked about this before. It's hard work. It's not an easy thing. You can't just take someone's culture off of the shelf. And I think what really came through for me is how each of them has thought so deeply about this and within their organizations as well. Jim is a little bit longer given his length of time that he's been with Verger, but then also Kim with her experience of switching to Columbia. I thought that that was so fascinating. What about you? Absolutely. I really love how Kim talked about her first few months on the job that, yes, this is how I'm going to use my time in the offsite. This is what's most important. This is my priority. Everything else, investment decisions, investment process, ultimately returns, flows from this. So we're going to start here. What a great model of how the industry should work. I just think there was so much to learn there. What about other big takeaways of this entire episode in your prep, Christy? Anything in particular that you walk away with having learned that you feel like you didn't quite appreciate or think through enough before the preparation? I always thought that I was weird in the sense that, yes, crunching the quantitative data and including it in due diligence reports is important in terms of building the actual recommendation. But when it comes to the softer, what we might even consider touchy-feely stuff, I always felt that that was important, but it seemed like such a waste at times. And as I really prepared for this episode and thought about my experiences in terms of hiring managers and stuff, a lot of the times when it goes wrong, it is a qualitative issue. It is some process issue that leads to bad risk management that becomes a problem down the line. And as I have gotten great advice from people or learned how to better identify those things, I think my manager selection got better and my portfolio construction got better. So it was surprising thinking back in hindsight for my experience in my career, just how much this has threaded through when my day-to-day was more so fixated on quant and data and analysis. But really my brain the whole time was working and all of us, we think about it, is thinking through these cultural things that we don't necessarily notice at the forefront, if that makes sense. Yeah. I said at the beginning of the episode that this was relatively easy to prepare for, meaning I didn't have to get my mind prepared to tackle something new or move into a research mode intellectually that really was trying to inventory how do we got to where we are. That all said, this episode is such a great example and illustration of why culture is just something you're always chasing. As we've said so many times, it's a constant dedication because you're learning something, it's changing, it's moving, it's migrating all the time. You have to stay ahead of it constantly. So I learned a lot. There were three big takeaways that I just wanted to share as I thought through both the prep, our segment, and then that awesome discussion with Jim and Kim. The first were this whole idea of persistent comparative advantage. This came up several times, both in the TAI research and then Kim had that great soundbite that I repeated about the, it's the one part of the business that's sustainable. Because we all like to talk about the unique edge, our strategies embody our intellectual capacity, our information sources our circles of influence. And some of this is very true. There's no doubt about it. But what was reinforced through the research and the prep is how fleeting all of that is. The industry is just too dynamic. No matter how good you are, capital flow is pretty darn efficient at exploiting and exposing opportunities in alpha, at least eventually. So alpha and edge are always migrating. They're always on the move. So this idea of how do you differentiate yourself well, it's culture, and you can't compete that out. It is persistent, even though you have to keep at it. It is persistent, and we just don't think about that enough. So that was the first one. The other one that I think came through so clearly was this reminder that the business is a science, but it's also very much an art. And we've got this tendency in our industry to bury ourselves in data and numbers and sometimes miss the forest through the trees. And by the way, outside the scope of this discussion, but this AI movement, I think we risk exacerbating 
this problem a little bit. So we do this in investing, but we also do this in leadership. We're neither cyborgs or just cogs in the big wheel. We're humans and we're all different. And I think you said earlier, weird and unique and leadership and asset allocation, therefore, is a balancing act. You need data, but you also need judgment. Those must coexist in a complementary way as one both depends and feeds on the other. So that's the second. The third one is maybe the crowning observation, which is behavior and character build trust. And as we said a number of times, the entire profession is built on trust. This agency relational business only exists because of a contractual mutual trust. So echoing Sandra Robertson again, CEO of Oxford Endowment Management from her discussion again with Ted Sides, life is too short to invest with these are my words, charlatans and deviants, that no matter how good their performance is, you've got to be willing to miss out on these types of people because collectively, we've got to spit this behavior out if we're to ascend to a true profession on behalf of the greater good. So we've got to reorient much more of our due diligence to the softer qualitative factors that over the long term, maybe in a bit of irony, they're softer, but they actually have much harder correlation with the investment outcomes is what the research says. So I just think there's so much wisdom and takeaways from just what was an outstanding episode so far. Agreed. Two of my favorite CIOs in the industry for quite a period of time. And I'm going to try not to gush anymore, but just really appreciate their feedback and their comments, particularly with regard to both the due diligence and the internal building of a team. Because to Kim's point, we talk about it, we make checklists about it, we do all these things, but it's the day-to-day action that's hard because it's consistent and it's building the relationship with people, which I think it's harder in a COVID world or has been harder in a COVID world. So hopefully our listeners learned a lot. So good. All right. We're going to finish as we always do with a fun personal question. So Christy, the, the question we have chosen for this episode, what book have you read this year? It doesn't have to be leadership or culture, by the way, because we already talked about that. So what book have you read this year that has had an impact on you and why? Okay, so there's actually two of them. The first one, and as soon as I say it, I hope I don't lose anybody in the audience, so forgive me in advance, but it's called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings That Formed the Movement. And it's literally a book of the legal writings. It's a very thick book. As you can see, I'm holding it up quite large and dense of probably 10 or 12 legal articles that became the genesis of Critical Race Theory, which was just interesting from my perspective because I didn't know much about it except for as a buzzword. So it really changed my perspective on how to not think about it necessarily as a political thing and more of it as a legal construct. And then also in the legal vein, because I'm a big nerd like that, there's a book called The Shadow Docket that's about the Supreme Court and just the inner workings of it. And one of the things that I loved most about it is I always like to think that our judicial system is complete and fair and only the best decisions happen. And a lot of times that is the case, but there are all these weird process issues that end up happening within any legal system and just opening my eyes to that both on the corporate side and on the human side. It was just very interesting to me because I feel like the reality is very different from how I envisioned the legal system working in our world. So what about you? So cool. Well, I am a voracious reader and I tend to get on these kicks. My year, I tend to choose a theme and 2023 has been biography year, which I haven't read historically a lot of biographies, but I've just been an insane madman this year. So I read Leonardo da Vinci and Elon Musk's biography, both from Walter Isaacson, who's, I think, one of the best biographers that's ever lived. Kissinger's illustration of his five favorite leaders. So it was a mini flyover of five biographies of Henry Kissinger's favorite leaders. That was outstanding. And 
reading Teddy Roosevelt's right now. But my favorite, it was actually the first book I completed this year. I look back in preparation for this. It's called From Third World to First. It's the Singapore story told from Lee Kuan Yew, which is my favorite leader of all time. I've mentioned several leaders that I look up to, but this first and long-standing prime minister of what effectively was a little pirate island when the British took it over and transforming that into the city-state beacon of capitalism and trade and commerce and finance around the world, it's mesmerizing what he was able to do. And that doesn't mean he was perfect. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with all the approaches and policies that he took, but there's so much there to learn. It also gives these biographies, especially for us Americans reading biographies of folks outside the States, gives you a lot more empathy and a different facet or perspective on world events that maybe you saw from a myopic view. So the Vietnam War, he has a very different view than the typical narrative of Americans. And the threat of communism for him was very scary and not so bilateral. It was surrounding him on all sides. So I just think from various perspectives, biographies just are an amazing insight into how other great leaders have thought about business and leading. And there's always a number of nuggets every time I read one of these. So from third world to first, Singapore story. Loved it. And we'll leave it there. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging with us. That was The Last Sip. And we are so excited to see you next time. 